Hello again. I hope this is working. I'm back again. This is Dr. Velma Scantaberry coming to you live from the, at the Dialysis Patient Citizens Educational Center. Uh, we had a little bit of computer glitch there, but I'm back and I hope that you are here to ask us your questions and uh, we want to be able to uh, communicate with you, talk to you about the issues on, of being on dialysis, issues of getting on the transplant list, issues of whether or not you're receiving the right treatment, what can you do to improve your lives while on dialysis, uh, even considering uh, if you're considering uh, getting on the transplant list. You know, for many patients, it's, there can be obstacles getting on the transplant list, but you want to be able to to walk you through those. You want to be able to resolve those issues and get you the help that you may need to provide better lives and better treatment for yourself. And so it's very important that you communicate uh, with your dialysis coordinator, your dialysis team, as well as uh, talk to them about the options for dialysis. If you're not doing well on dialysis, you want to be able to provide you with opportunities to consider uh, whether or not you are in unit dialysis, whether you are on peritoneal dialysis and experiencing issues, or if you are on home dialysis. And I know there's so many patients who are reluctant to talk about or even consider home dialysis because they may find that it's a hardship. But it's also very important to understand that the more you dialyze and filter your body, the better it is for your overall system. Uh, and to get those toxins out. And oftentimes patients are confused because they feel like they're on dialysis, but they're still making urine. And I think my kidneys are still, are still working because I urinate every day. Well, that urine or liquid that comes out is not actually filtering your body. So the dialysis is necessary to be there, is, is needed, is needed to get those metabolites out of your system that your kidney is unable to do. And yes, if you're making urine, it's an advantage because you can balance your water intake a little bit better. And so you are able to take in probably more liquids than you would have if you were not making urine. Understand that not everyone will continue to make urine uh, while on dialysis. So it's important to understand your whole, your body and your process. And so Again, for those of you who are just joining, my name is Dr. Scantabare. I work as a medical consultant for Dialysis Patient Citizens uh, Educational Center. And I work with Nancy Scott, who is the Education Project Manager. And we are excited to come to you with our very first Facebook Live and to answer your questions. And so uh, one of the questions that was just posed is, what is the expected duration of each dialysis session? What is the best way to add to the routine? And for many patients, what is the expected? Generally, you want a certain number of hours to be able to get those, get your numbers back to a reasonable state. So it all depends on how much fluid you're gained, uh, how high your numbers have risen. And so for many patients, if you're on dialysis three days a week, you do three and a half to four hours a session. There are patients who dialyze at home uh, and are able to do it five days a week or six days a week, just doing two, hour, two to three hours each time. Uh, but the goal is just imagine that, uh, how much you consume. If you eat three times a day, 
then you're going to have much more uh, waste products and metabolites that need to be excreted. And you will find that patients over a long weekend, uh, this weekend coming up is Memorial Weekend, many patients will not dialyze on Monday. And so they will have extra fluid on board that may play a role in how they feel and how they're able, what they're able to tolerate and, and therefore must and is necessary to get dialyzed on Tuesday. Those that dialyze on Saturday will, that, that will be able to go to two to three days before dialysis on Tuesday, but it's important to look at your fluid gains. When you're not dialyzed and you're not making urine, then you're going to accumulate all that extra fluid that you have uh, taken in if you haven't burned it off and you can't urinate it out. So if you gain five kilos or 12 pounds, that's the 12 pounds of fluid that your heart now has to work with. And that can play havoc on your heart. So it's important to uh, stick to your regimen of dialysis and your routine. Don't cut your treatments short because all you're doing is not allowing your body to filter and to adequately filter the waste products that need to, to be excreted or to be removed by the dialysis machine. And that is in place of your kidney. Uh, and that's why it's so important to, to stick to your routine. Uh, many patients feel that, you know, maybe it's okay to, to not go once, maybe just go twice a week. No, that's not enough. It's just you're eating three times a day. You're consuming uh, waste products. Uh, and, and so you need a way to get that, that system, those waste products out of, out of your body. And if you have a kidney transplant, now that kidney transplant will, even though it's one kidney, will continue to do the work of your body. And of, of both kidneys and so your body will gradually improve uh, and to the point where your creatinine can be as low as one or less than one and you can continue to function um, with that one kidney but now you are able to urinate more and you're able to urinate as a normal person and the that kidney is now filtering your body instead of the dialysis and that's the advantage of uh, having a kidney transplant is now you're not your creatinine doesn't remain high and you're just uh, getting rid of the excess, now the body is able to cleanse that. And so patients can, while you're only receiving one kidney, it can do the function. Many people are born with one kidney and do just well as well. Another question that came up is, what's the maximum number of transplants that a patient can receive? Uh, the maximum that I've ever given one person was five. Uh, generally, one, the first kidney is placed on one side, left side or right side. The second one, you go to the opposite side. When you get to the third kidney, you usually take out one of the old kidneys to put the new kidney there. Uh, and I've only had two patients get above four kidneys. Generally, the body will react to having these foreign, uh, this foreign tissue in their bodies. And so by the time you get to, third, to a third kidney, your body has seen the genetic makeup of three different people. Generally for these patients, they, they develop antibodies to the genetic material of the previous donors, and it makes it very difficult to get a fourth kidney or even a fifth kidney. So those are patients who wait longer on dialysis and are fortunately may not survive to even get a fourth or fifth kidney. Technically, it becomes a challenge of where to put them but oftentimes you may go inside the abdomen closer to the bladder because the goal is to be able to 
you can place the kidney in the blood vessels as you can go higher up, but you still need to be able to connect the ureter, uh, that drainage tube to the bladder so that that person will be able to make urine in a normal way. So it's a little bit complicated. Uh, fortunately, the antibodies that your body developed in a defense mechanism against those previous donors that you've been exposed to uh, through the transplants can inhibit many people from getting a fourth kidney and very rarely a fifth kidney. So that's important to know, but it doesn't, should not deter you. The goal for us as transplant surgeons is to really maximize the life of each kidney. Uh, no kidney is going to last forever unless you happen to be an identical twin. Then your body will see that kidney as absolutely you and you will need very little to no uh, anti-rejection medication. But everyone else, if you're a sibling, uh, yeah, if you're a parent, if you're a cousin, if you are unrelated, you will require anti-rejection medicine to keep your body from recognizing that kidney is foreign. And the goal for some people who may share nothing in common with the donors can still get 10, 12, 15, 18 years out of one kidney. And then there are others who may not be able to get that longevity. But that's why you're, you need to be monitored. That's why you need blood work. That's why you need medications. And the goal is to be able to maximize longevity. And while you have that kidney, your body is returning to normal homeostasis. You're able to excrete all of those metabolites. Uh, you see patients on dialysis get darker because of phosphorus accumulation in their skin. And so as you get transplanted, you see patients get back to the normal skin tone uh, because your body is now able to excrete all those metabolites. And so another question is, are there any physical or mental health conditions that can complicate dialysis treatment? Certainly it's important to understand that your ability to tolerate dialysis is really about being able to manage that fluid balance. And one of the biggest downsides to long-term dialysis is heart failure. So you want to be able to avoid the highs and lows of your volume. Um, if, you're, if you watch your diet, limit your intake, and, not, and don't challenge your heart, you can do well on, on dialysis. Uh, physically, it's a challenge in, in trying to get patients to understand that you're, if you're not making urine, uh, you need to limit your, your fluid intake because you just, you turn your heart into um, like an accordion, increasing your volume, decreasing your volume. And so heart failure becomes, uh, cardiovascular disease becomes the, the biggest uh, downside and the cause of death for many patients on dialysis. So stick to your diet, stick to your volume, uh, stick to your dialysis. And if you do it at home, uh, as Ms. Shara Johnson said, you can do well because home dialysis, you do it on your time, you do it uh, on the uh, uh, five, six times a week, if you so, and so you achieve that, that better balance overall. So what happens when a patient always forgets to take their binders with meals? Well, you know, the, the dialysis cannot, um, the dialysis machine is not able to take off phosphorus. So you really need your binders to get that off, out of your system. And phosphorus can build up. And so it's important to figure out a way either uh, limit your intake of foods that are high in phosphorus uh, and, um, and therefore, but you still need to take your binders because uh, that can become very high and can be a big factor in uh, deposition that occurs in your 
and your blood vessels, for instance, can ruin uh, significant cardiovascular disease. It, it can really mess up your system. And so it's important to, to take your binders because you will see patients who have normal blood vessels when they started dialysis and in three or four years, not compliant with their binders. And now their blood vessels have a lot of uh, de deposition uh, and uh, what we call arteriosclerosis. So that becomes very important too be compliant with your uh, taking your binders. If you, uh, there may be different ones. If we can't tolerate one, you may talk to your doctor or your, or your healthcare team about other options for you. And also limiting the kind of foods you eat that may be contributing to a high phosphorus or to so, so that you're not requiring as many, as many binders to take. So what are the financial costs of dialysis and what resources are, are available to help maintain these costs? Well, dialysis is actually, once you develop end-stage renal disease uh, and require dialysis, you Medicare covers the cost of dialysis. So it, uh, it becomes a disability. Uh, and so end-stage renal disease and dialysis is covered by, by Medicare. So you qualify for, for dialysis unless you're not a uh, resident uh, of this country, uh, you should qualify for Medicare. Uh, and so there are there are very there are different fun different options out there for you. If you're under 65 and over 65, maybe uh, different criteria for what other opportunities you can you are available for in terms of financial costs. How you cover your meds? Did you have uh, did you work before you were ended up on dialysis? Uh, did you have any additional plans, um, uh, med medical plans that may help you with, the, with um, your medications? Uh, and so there are financial counselors within your dialysis unit that can help you with these resources, opportunities to look at how you pay for your co-pays, how you afford your medications, those sort of things. And so this, this is also one of the uh, opportunities to be uh, in the community of dialysis patients, citizens, educational uh, center, not only to learn more, but to also to connect to different resources that may be available on the website at dialysis uh, patients, citizens website. So I encourage you to click on the website and, um, and learn more and also to see what opportunities that, that are there for you to, uh, as a member, to join or to access as far as policies, things that uh, going on within your state, questions that you may have in order to answer. So what are some of the reasons that sepsis occurs in dialysis patients? Uh, as, you under, as you realize, when you get dialyzed, you're, you're introducing, uh, whether it's uh, a foreign substance, such as a needle, uh, it's going through your skin, uh, into your blood vessel, so that you can uh, they can remove your blood through a machine and return it back to you. Whether you have a fistula, whether you have a catheter, your risk depends on your source uh, or your access. Certainly, if you have a dialysis catheter, you are more likely to be at risk for infections because that catheter site may get uh, contaminated. You're supposed to keep it clean. You clean the tip, uh, uh, but you still may have a source of infection uh, from that foreign body and from that connection. Uh, going through your skin, you should make sure that your skin is clean if you're going through your fistula and accessing those sites. If you're doing it at home, you wanna make sure those who, who do home dialysis are aware of 
uh, the sterility that needs to go in and the process to keep that site clean and to not contaminate uh, the needle with outside bugs or, or, or bacteria that may be on your skin that may get introduced into your system. And that's how most patients will get infected from having an outside infection or outside uh, bacteria get into their bloodstream, either through the site or the, the needle, the skin, usually it's usually source of skin uh, bacteria. Uh, some patients may get sepsis because of an infection that they may have that spreads through the bloodstream. Let's say, for instance, they have an a exit site infection that can contaminate uh, and get into your bloodstream and become uh, bacteria, you can become develop bacteremia. So any kind of, you can have a urinary tract infection that may go to your kidneys or, or uh, an, an abscess in anywhere that can then get into your bloodstream. So sepsis is when bacteria gets from the side of their entries from your body into your bloodstream. So that becomes important to understand uh, why it's so important to keep your, your dialysis sites, whether it's uh, whether you're on PD, anything that foreign substance, a bacteria tends to want to live around them, whether it's your, your um, dialysis catheter, keeping those clean, keeping the way when you uh, connect those connections clean. So that becomes very important. So thank you for that question. That was um, one of the things that we worry about with patients on dialysis is avoiding infections and uh, making sure that, especially when you're doing it at home, that you have an environment that can keep your your area clean, keep your room clean, uh, avoid pets from coming in or being close to your equipment and contaminating your even your own skin. So one of the questions was about what's the difference between peritoneal and hemodialysis? And uh, hemodialysis is as a hemo means your, uh, your blood system. So we're dialyzing using your blood. And so whether it's via catheter uh, in your neck to begin with or fistula, so the dialysis machine is taking your blood out of your body, filtering it and returning it to your body. Peritoneal dialysis is when you have a catheter that is placed inside your abdomen uh, and uh, once that catheter and the site is healed, uh, a high dialysate fluid is then instilled into your abdomen. And the surfaces of your abdominal cavity, the surface of your small intestines are all lined with uh, what we call peritoneum. And there, that can be a, a, become a source of, of um, uh, filtering. And so the fluid within your abdomen it will stay there for a certain amount of time uh, and you, you let it dwell in and then you take it off. So peritoneal dialysis is in your peritoneum or in your abdomen using your peritoneal surface as a filtering mechanism to take the waste products out of your small capillaries and your blood vessels and back into that fluid as a transudate that then gets ex, ex, there is then excreted where you exit and empty the fluid at the end of the day or after four hours and this is repeated on a daily basis so that's one of the things some patients especially for young people uh, who may be an advantage not being hooked up to the machine parenting dialysis once you've thought and once you're uh, correctly taught how to do it you can do it at home Parents can help these young young kids and young teenagers to do it so that they're not hooked up in a dialysis center. So that's a, a, easy way, a easier way. Uh, it's less cumbersome 
uh, you're able to travel more and um, you have probably less dietary restrictions with peritoneal dialysis than hemodialysis. And so it's one of those options that should be given to, to patients depending on your body size and what your doctor sees is you may have risk factors that may not, uh, that would make you not a great candidate for peritoneal dialysis and that's important to know. Another question is, are there um, any specific risks or considerations for elderly patients starting dialysis? Uh, one of the things especially that we would often suggest for elderly patients who um, may have more trouble on hemodialysis because of heart issues, um, heart failure or, uh, or inability to tolerate volumes in terms of being an increase in volumes between dialysis is that they may do better with peritoneal dialysis if they uh, have a body habit that that uh, is allows that to be permissible. So for many of the patients who are over 75 or over 70 who may not qualify for a transplant uh, or may have underlying heart disease or cancer, other things that may uh, inhibit them from getting a transplant, um, oftentimes uh, peritoneal dialysis may work better for them because one is, is less stressful on the heart because of um, less volume changes when you're doing dialysis, you're taking off fluid and you're putting on fluid during between dialysis and so it's much more tolerated uh, for patients who are elderly. So is there an age limit for an individual to be considered for a transplant? Uh, generally the upper limit of transplant to is going to be varying from transplant center to transplant center. Some patients will, some centers will have an age limit of 75, others will have an age limit of 70. Uh, they may do patients over 75 if they come with a living donor because when you're that age, sitting on the transplant list waiting for a kidney is, is very unlikely that you will get a match considering uh, that younger people, uh, younger, the younger you are, the more likely you are to get transplanted. So if you are 75 and you come with a living donor, it's likely that you, if you don't have other risk factors that may exclude you from being a transplant candidate, you have to be medically cleared and you have a living donor, then it's likely that there are some programs who may accept, accept you at that age. Oftentimes, it's, it varies depending on the donor availability, availability in that area and the likelihood that they'll find you a donor. But the best bet as we get older is certainly to find and have a living donor who you know will donate to you and you're not necessarily competing with all the thousands of people in that area that are waiting for uh, kidney transplant as well. So for many patients, we encourage them to, as you know about the fact that you're hitting stage five renal failure, think about living donation. Think about whether or not there's someone, a loved one or someone else who may want to give you that, that kidney and give you that gift of life so that you don't even have to uh, get on dialysis. Many patients think you have to be on dialysis to get transplanted. No, if you are aware that you will, uh, your kidneys will fail if you have a, an early diagnosis of kidney disease and uh, are, are gradually getting worse and you have someone who wants to donate to you, that can be a set in motion as making sure that you're cleared for transplant. 
uh, and that transplant can occur without dialysis occurring. It can put, put in place so that the donor is worked up and you can move from now you need alternative treatment, uh, your medications and diet isn't working and your numbers have gotten so bad that your, your nephrologist is saying it's either dialysis or transplant at that point. Transplant can be scheduled at the convenience of both your living donor and you as the recipient and proceed with transplant and avoid dialysis altogether. But that requires knowing that someone is willing to donate to you and that is certainly a wonderful gift uh, that many patients have had the advantage of, of being able to do, but for most patients, they're able to get on the transplant list uh, and wait, depending on your area, how long it may take. Um, last question, are there any promising research or innovations in treating kidney disease beyond dialysis and transplantation? Certainly, there's a lot of work going on with the artificial uh, implantable kidney, but because of funding, they have not been able to have uh, rapid advances in allowing it to come to fruition as uh, we would like. And so from that standpoint, um, I will, it, would be, it would be wonderful to be able to have an alternative to have an implantable device that can save the lives of so many patients who are unable to get a transplant. Um, but that's a topic in itself and maybe uh, one of our Facebook uh, lives or Instagram, we can hit on such an information of where are we with the implantable uh, kidney device. It is 1 p.m. I thank you guys for being here. Uh, can a person lose their place in the transplant list after declining kidneys? No, you don't actually lose your place. Uh, you actually will remain there. You don't get penalized for declining kidneys unless you do it over and over again. So then you need to have a sit down and have a chat to figure out what are your objections and do you really want to be transplanted? So I enjoy this, this uh, 30 minutes with you. I very much appreciate you coming on, asking questions. Uh, this is our very first Facebook Live here at uh, Dialysis Patient Citizens Educational Center. And we'll be doing this once a month as well as Instagram Live once a month. Uh, so have your questions uh, ready to ask. You can go to our website to post your questions as well. And I look forward to um, working and seeing you more and more in the coming months. Have a blessed weekend. Enjoy your Memorial uh, weekend coming up. Uh, be safe. Uh, watch your diet uh, and uh, follow those recommendations of your doctor so that you don't uh, end up being chastised next week. So have a wonderful weekend and God bless.